The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, last week, we opened up a discussion of the roots of suffering. The roots of suffering being greed, hatred, and delusion. And last week, what we talked about was desire, or greed. And we largely talked about um, the fact that the leaning into of greed and desire, it, that we can feel that happening, and that the, the way out of that has to do with cultivating a sense of generosity and appreciation and gratitude. We also spent some time talking about the fact that when we're looking for happiness as something that is outside us, we don't find it. And that the movement of greed haps has a quality of wanting something that we don't have, that's outside of us. Hatred or aversion or ill will are not unlike this. The Dalai Lama said, the suffering and happiness each of us experiences is a reflection of the distortion or clarity with which we review ourselves and the world. The suffering and happiness each of us experiences is a reflection of the distortion or clarity with which we view ourselves and the world. And I open with that because it turns out hatred, ill will, and aversion have a lot to do with how we view ourselves, and the world, about the ideas we have about ourselves, others, how things should be. So some of what we're going to talk about today has to do with that, with views, with the windows through which we look and see ourselves, others, and the world. You know, when you list the three, greed, hatred, and diversion, as I said last week, you know, it's kind of hard to relate to hatred, really. You can say hatred is what causes wars in the world, but, you know, I don't really hate. That's such a a difficult word. Um, Aversion, ill will, yeah, I'm really familiar with those. And I tend to sort of reject hatred because I don't want to see it in myself. We all do this. So, so there are two things that are really paramount to how we consider greed, hatred, and delusion, but specifically hatred, ill will, and aversion. One is the view that I exist separately from you. We exist separately from others. I'm better and I deserve more. And I look for ways to lift myself above others, either by the way I view myself or uh, some other way to gain for myself the expense of others. Now, that sounds quite awful, you know. We would all say, no, 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 I would never do that. But that is the movement. That's the human response to things not being the way we want them. Well, it can't be my fault. Right away, we, you know, 
Or maybe it's totally my fault, and we direct, we actually war with ourselves. But we'll talk about that more. The second is the view that I am, my opinions, my beliefs, my views. This is is particularly insidious because the way that we identify ourselves has a lot to do with how we see ourselves. You know, well, I'm this kind of person. I'm female. I'm a wife. All the things that you might list about yourself. But they're really only perspectives on yourself. Now, one thing about the opinions and views of ourselves is that somehow they're always a little better than everybody else's. You know, they're more clear, they're, they're more concise, they're more reasoned, whatever word you want to use. And that my source of happiness is relating to squelching all those other views that are inferior to mine. Arising out of these two things, views and I am my views are really the sources of aversion in your life, in my life. So we're going to talk about how some of that works. The other side of it is at the root of the antidote to that root is that the source of true happiness actually resides in the happiness of others. That's a little tricky. The source of my happiness relates to your happiness. And the development and, com- uh, and cultivation of compassion for myself and others. That's the antidote. That is the wholesome root that overcomes hatred and aversion and ill will. So much of hatred or aversion arises out of the separation of self from other. So much, so much. To do harm to someone else, we have to dehumanize them. Ask anyone who's been a soldier. We have to look at that other person and not see them as a person. We don't really have it in ourselves otherwise. This applies to self, self-loathing also. You have to say, oh, well, That person is not deserving, or that person is less, or that person is something else in order to do them harm. So think about the process of imagining that other people in your life are inhuman, not worthy of consideration. What that must be doing to you. Because this is all arising out of your own responses to what you meet. This arises out of our own responses to what we meet. So consider we versus them. Let's talk about aversion and the relationships between people. Not like me. Not like me. All the ways we're not like me. I was listening to the radio on my way down here this morning, and there was an ad for a particular radio channel that was the Redneck Channel, and they spent a lot of time talking about how they had converted redneck from a, uh, a negative connotation to a positive connotation. And all of the things that, that they talked about were about we're different from them and we're better. And it was really uh, wrenching 
wrenching to see someone try to make those kinds of distinctions that were really built on, I'm better than you and you are not good. And based on, you know, they were, they were using some kind of silly things like, uh, I think it was called blue-collar radio, and that, you, do you have holes in your socks? Yes, you're one of us. I'm thinking, what a silly thing to differentiate people on, whether you have holes in your socks. Nope, that's not a hole. It's, a, it's you know, something I picked up. You know, I mean, what a silly thing. Okay, not like me, me. Views about goodness and badness. That's good, that's bad. That's good, that's bad. Judgments. Judgments are a very strong sense of how we separate ourselves from others. For a while, I did, uh, I uh, volunteered as a hospice worker at, uh, at Laguna Honda in the city. And a lot of the people who came into the hospice at Laguna Honda came straight off the streets. And I can tell you that those people were different from me. And one of the reasons that I continued doing it for so long is they were such a window on a world I did not touch. A a world that I am fairly protected from. And I still remember a black woman who came in she was dying. She, she, she had gone into the emergency room at San Francisco General, and they discovered that she had cervical cancer, and they shifted her over to Laguna Honda, and she really only lasted about a day and a half at Laguna Honda. But when she came in, she was violent. She was screaming. She was yelling at everybody. The nurses couldn't get anywhere close to her. And I went over and sat down by her bed, and she had her arm over her eyes, and I said you know, you're safe here. And she turned around and she opened her eyes and she said, I'm safe here? And I really regretted the color of my skin because I'm not sure she believed me. But she was calm after that. And I considered how scary it must be for someone who lives on the streets to be totally vulnerable and that that was a world I was totally protected from. Views about goodness and badness. I'm sure I could have known many things about her that I would not have found attractive. But mostly what I saw was the humanity that we shared because she was so scared, and I could relate to being scared. I could relate to being scared. My truth, your delusion. This opens up around religion, obviously, is a good place. My truth, your delusion. But it has to do with a lot of things. How we view how someone interacts with the world. My truth might be, if you would just apply yourself, you can do this. Think of all the ways that that has been misused in life. All the ways. Physical attractiveness. Who do you feel comfortable by? Everybody in this room right now has roughly the same color skin. That feels kind of safe. Right? I don't like to think that, but yeah, feels kind of safe. I was recently at a 
50th reunion, and there was a man who came to this reunion who was missing a nose, was just cut off. And so what you see are two holes into his head. And then he had something like a Fu Manchu mustache that went down about mid-chest, really long mustache, and it was gray. This is a 50th reunion. And he uh, he had dyed the mustache blue on either side of his mouth which I suspect was intended to be kind of a, uh, a distraction from the nose. This man was not attractive. And people had a lot of trouble talking to him. Really, had a lot of trouble talking to him. And I got to practice how to look someone in the face without looking at them, which, you know, it's, there's a skill. You kind of look between their eyes or at their forehead, and they, they think you're engaging with them. And, and it is, in fact, an attempt to engage with them. But it turned out he also was a survivalist, and he had all of these, you know, uh, anti-government, anarchic reaction uh, uh, ideas that he also was spreading and spouting. I didn't find that attractive either. So I stood and talked to him for about 15 minutes (laughs) and considered what it was like to try to see someone who was totally unattractive to me, to to try to find a place where our humanity intersected, because it did. Be aware of how your own reaction to physical attractiveness associates with how you think about people. There are some people who have total disregard for somebody who is overweight. It is all their fault. They are... There's something wrong with them. There is a wrongness associated with overweight or with people who are really skinny. Oh, there's something wrong with them. And be aware, find these views because it is this separation where we start dehumanizing people. We put them in a box. There are all kinds of forms of diversity management having to do with gender, sexual orientation, racism, Ethnicity. We hear all these forms of separation. We're not always aware of our own place there. We can intellectualize all of these differences and we can intellectualize tolerance. But maybe it's not deep inside us. Maybe there's always just a little extra effort we have to make. Mental acuity. Who are you comfortable with? Do you only associate with people who seem like they're PhD caliber? Do you never talk to anybody that maybe didn't go to school? Um, One of of the, the most brilliant men that I have had in my life I did not go to school. And he was a nonlinear thinker. He was truly brilliant, but difficult. <laughs> and he had a chip on his shoulder toward anybody who was educated. Because he knew he was smart. <laughs> and they had all these advantages. There's something wrong with them. If they were really good people, they wouldn't have needed to do that. It is subtle the way we separate ourselves from people. It's subtle. 
Class consciousness, that's a real obvious one. That was another one that I addressed in, in working with the people at Laguna Honda, being sure that I was not feeling condescending or uh, like I was slumming to be with these people, to truly be with these people, so that I was not falling into that category. This is not automatic. This requires really noticing yourself, noticing what you think, noticing your views. Get in touch with your views. Don't be so sure that you know what they are. (laughs) I find new ones all the time. But it takes some effort to, to be aware of them and to consciously decide, I need to look at this. I need to see what I see. Am I seeing through this view or am I seeing freshly into the situation? When you think of the current political situation, the shutdown of the government, and the looming default due to the debt ceiling, what arises in you? Most likely aversion. But after that, sadness, confusion, anger, hatred, Fear, all of these. Powerful feelings have been generated in this conflict. I have opinions. I have views. And when I feel myself becoming very callous toward one approach or another, I have to remind myself that I'm doing that that I am doing a separation. How can those people be such? Fill in your word. Okay? So, have you meditated on how you feel about this? Do you know what your feelings are? Do you stop with your first reaction? Do you say, I can't believe this is happening. I'm not going to think about it. I'm pushing this away. Do you reject it? This just isn't happening. Do you compulsively think about it? Does it generate worry? And inside that somewhere is fear. Do you have revenge fantasies? Revenge fantasies. There are views, we versus them. They are wrong or evil. They are ignorant or deluded. They are scary or reckless. And it's all outside us. Whatever you think about that political situation, be aware of what it is doing in you Be aware of how those feelings are being placed in your heart and how your heart is reacting to all of that. Because aversion is aversion, and aversion shuts you down. It shuts you down. It was, uh, I read a very interesting article in the New York Times the other day by David Carr, And the title of the article was, It's Not Just Political Districts, Our News is Gerrymandered Too. 
And he made the point that we tend to read the things that are reinforcing our own views. And we get new arguments for our own views. So it isn't that we know everything that we're reading. It's that we're bolstering our own positions. And he became interested in this. uh, And this is true of newspapers, magazines, uh, where you get your TV news. We're reinforcing our own views. There's a kind of justification for my aversion and anger and hatred and ill will. And And it's not so much conscious. We're we're just more comfortable. So, So I'm selecting some things from there. And he spoke about a man who works in Washington, who used to take the Washington Post but, and, uh, and the Wall Street Journal, and he, he quit taking the Washington Post because he said it was the treatment of almost any conservative issue. It was slanted and often nasty. And you know, why should I get upset every morning? Okay, the person he was talking about was Justice Antonin Scalia. Scalia, I think you might say it. And he gave an interview with a Jennifer Sr. in New York Magazine talking about the tendency to limit one's sources of, of information. So uh, if you look past, here's, I want to read you this section. If you look past cable, talk, row, and traditional media, talk radio and traditional media, there's another layer of self-reinforcing messages that may be having an impact. As Eli Perisher described in The Filter Bubble, Search companies rely on algorithms to predict what users want to see based on past clicks on the Internet, meaning that users are moved further away from information streams that don't fit their ideological bent. To put it another way, you and I might find very different results when we enter the word shutdown on Google. The skillful custodians of search can produce what Mr. Perisher describes as personal ecosystems of information. I don't think about that so much. You know, I'm, I'm pretty facile on the Internet, and I'll put in a search term, and I don't always take the first thing that's there. You know, I'll go through it. But it is true that I am not seeing things that they've never seen me look at. That's really worth thinking. We do that separation in our lives all the time. That separation, we and they, we and they, we and they, is being reinforced. And we need to look at that in order to live a full life. In order to live a full life. Here's how he concluded. More often than not, than not when we tune into cable or fire up the web, we are staring into the mirror and not out a window. We only talk to ourselves and we are reinforcing a sense of self. And that is the source of separation between we and they and that is the source of aversion, hatred, and ill will in our lives. So it's worth looking at. As human beings, we experience through views. It's not like views are bad. It's just what happens. We relate relate to materiality, to, you know, I view this as, oh, I've forgotten the name of it, but I view it as that anyway, (laughs) a lectern. Um, It's a useful thing to have that so I can place this document here so I can look at what what notes I want to say. It's not that it's useless. 
unless I can't give a talk without it. And then it becomes something somewhat less skillful. Views are the source of our perceptions, our feelings, the way we interact with the world. It isn't that they're bad. We just have to know they're there. We have to be aware of them. We have to pay attention to that. So in order to... I talked to somebody a few days ago who told me that, that she saw no way out of her unhappiness because she, she had a victim mentality. Wow. <laughs> so I asked her how she knew this. She said, well, you know, it's a fact. I have a victim mentality. And I said, well, so you've seen yourself as a victim in the past. Are you a victim right at this moment? What are you a victim of right at this moment? And how do you know that's what's going to happen next? The fact that she knows about this victim mentality is very useful because now she can see it and say, oh, so I said to her, you know, well, you could try just saying, okay, here comes the victim thing again. You're looking quite yellow today. You know, if you separate yourself from that view, you don't have to be your view. You don't have to be your view. And you don't have to deny its existence. Both things are possible. So what happens is we, it, as we pay attention to this, we become increasingly aware of what are the ways, the windows through which we are seeing the world. And as we become aware of them, we can, we can choose, we can notice this is harmful. Ah, this is harmful. This view is harmful. We can notice this view is beneficial. This view has good things about it. This is a good view. This, this does not result in suffering. And then we can choose. We can say, this view results in suffering. I'm going to have to be careful about this view. I have to be vigilant about this view. This view brings happiness, lifts my heart. Ah, I need to cultivate this view. This isn't rocket science, but it does take vigilance. It does keep, keep take noticing. We're doing no less than reprogramming our mind habits to become free of the suffering caused by aversion. There are many kinds of aversion. There is anger, hostility, dislike. Dislike? Yeah. I mean, there are people I dislike. I dislike things about them. There was a, a guy on the, on the road this morning who was talking on his phone. He was in a beat-up pickup, and he seemed very... He, he was right behind me, and he would run, go way off the road, I mean, literally out of the lane, and then at, at 65 miles an hour, and then he'd come back in, and I thought, boy, I'm so glad I'm getting off the freeway. <laughs> I get off the freeway, and he came right after me. <laughs> and I remember thinking, as soon as the word jerk came into my mind, I thought... Now, I don't actually know he's a jerk. I know that he's doing this behavior that I find scary, that is fearful to me, because I'm afraid he's going to run into the back of me. But I don't know that he's a jerk. I don't know that something terrible hasn't just happened in his life that he's trying to take care of. I don't know whether this is a habit. I don't know whether he's had too much coffee or something else. 
What I don't know far outnumbers what I know. So maybe he's not a jerk. Maybe it's not necessary to make that separation between us. And maybe I can wish him well, hoping that none of those things I imagined, those negative things I imagined, were true. And it is turned from me versus him to we're in this life together. And that's, that is the opposite of aversion. So, one of the things that becomes very obvious... Yeah, yeah. Sure. I, except you, need, you would need the, the microphone because we are, uh, we are recording this. So, uh, so, part of what we're... Okay. Yeah. So... It, you got it? Can you hear? Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, in this situation... So you get a guy who's, you know, whether he's a jerk or it's one time only or whatever, I, I will let you know that I call 911s if I see that's If I see someone going at 85 miles an hour going in and out, I say that person could cause some real suffering to other people. Mm-hmm. What's people's sense on that? Do people, you know, just let that happen and say, hey, we're all in this together or, hey, this person could be dangerous? Well, so I think sometimes it's important to make a distinction between whether this person is dangerous or whether... I'm just afraid of this person. <laughs> you know, and, and after he got off the freeway, by the way, uh, he was no longer driving erratically. <laughs> he was leaving a very safe distance between us, and I would have regretted calling 911. So, uh, so a, a, another part of the message about knowing your views and paying close attention is to maybe pause before your response. Pause before the response. Make, make sure that you're find, getting enough information. Thank um, you. Because one of the most important discoveries that I have made about aversion is that the person who is most hurt by my aversion is me. When you're angry with someone... They may not even know you're angry with them. The only person experiencing this anger is me. If I take anger, there are many possible responses. You can feel the rush of anger in your body, and you can say, okay, I'm focusing on my body. I can feel the energy. I can separate the energy from whatever caused me to be angry. That kind of might deflate it. I can look at the anger and say, this anger is not me. Anger is present. You know, it's kind of a mental manipulation of it. I can yell at somebody. I can walk out of the room. I can frantically, frantically do meta for them, which is another form of pushing them away and saying, if you were just better, you would be, we wouldn't have this problem. Or I could do meta for me. Meta for me to soften my heart. To soften my heart. With aversion, we habitually resist, deny, avoid unpleasant feelings, circumstances, people we don't like. We want everything to be pleasant, comfortable, satisfying. 
and we become obsessed with strategies for securing that pleasantness. And one of the ways of securing is getting rid of all those things in our life we don't like. And that pushing things away is shutting down pieces of us because all we're talking about is our own responses to what we encounter. We can't even have conflict within ourselves because we're opposed to the feelings that we have, right? This, this is what self-criticism is about. I don't like it when I'm that way. I should have gotten over that a long time ago. This shouldn't be happening, and the energy is going up. And yeah, oh, What is that? It's all being created by my own response to my own perceived not-goodness. Recognizing it as my own perceived not-goodness, I can react the way I just described, or I can decide to say, oh, gee, I'm sure sorry that that's still coming up. That's a, that's a shame. And I can, I can treat it a little more lightly. I can hold it with a sense of compassion. That I know I've been working on that a long time. And that energy, that energy shift takes me out of repeating the story that is reinforcing what's so horrible. It's repeating the story, justifying the feeling. You don't have to justify the feeling. It's there with or without you. It's actually only there with you. (laughs) But you don't have to join it. You don't have to jump in and say, I'm going to wrestle this to the ground. You can just say, ah, there it is. You can do this. And it does take practice. It isn't automatic. Ajahn Shah says, if you want to transform the mind, you must know and transform the heart. And when the practice gets uncomfortable and you want to quit, that's when you know you're on the right track. I've had that feeling. You know, that just doesn't feel right. You know, and you get restless and kind of irritated and you... Jumpy, pay attention. Pay attention to those moments. Something's happening. Practice means meeting the unpleasant with patience, kindness, forgiveness, and compassion. Patience. Patience. Number one, patience. The wanting everything to be different has a big tick next to it, which says, I want it to be different now. Might not happen that way. And we have to practice meeting our own unpleasant experiences in the same way. You know, um, sometimes uh, I particularly dislike when I get irritable, and so does my husband. And I may tell him, you know, I'm feeling irritable. This has nothing to do with you. And I don't like that irritability. And I can feel it in my body. And I, yeah, why doesn't it just go away? Why doesn't it just go away? And I was recently on retreat, and I had a day of irritability. And when you're on retreat, you're particularly sensitized, and you can really feel it. And I was, I was irritated at my irritability. <laughs> I wanted it all to go away. And I said, oh. And just that, just the sound of that, oh, 
was you're trying so hard. You're trying so hard. And there was, there was a turn towards self-compassion. <clears throat> you're trying so hard. And that the energy of that turn changed what was going on in my body. And I watched that energy. I paid close attention, became very aware of that energy. And the irritability lessened. I'm not going to tell you it went away, but the softening of my heart also softened that irritability. And it became more trivial. It became not so obsessive. Because I was placing my attention in another place. It's not unlike, I mean, there are, very, there are various coping strategies with all forms of aversion. You know, you can, we, we, I went over a few of them a while ago. You can walk away from them, you can deny them, you can suppress them. What I think is the most skillful is to notice what it's doing to your heart. Notice whether you are building up a callus around your heart. The way I describe it in myself is that I become rigid. I become kind of frozen and stuck. And I can feel that feeling, that, that stuckness, that, that kind of calloused over feeling of my heart. And it's not something you can will away. <laughs> you can't just say, oh, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be open-hearted. <laughs> and you've got this callus sitting in front of it. You have to wear it down. And you wear it down through the practices of compassion, gratitude, appreciation. That's how you wear it down. Because what you want, what you really want, what I really want in the world, is to experience and feel my life. And shutting it down is not the way to do that. Shutting down my willingness to be present for the unpleasant is shutting down maybe half of my life. Right? I mean, life is not pleasant all the time. And so if I refuse to feel unpleasantness, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that I grow to like unpleasantness, but the goal is more a sense of ease, to, be, to make it possible to be present with something that's not pleasant. And you have to practice this. You know, maybe it's something uh, as mundane as a smell. That smell is unpleasant. And you can work up quite an irritation over an unpleasant smell. Or you can say, ah, there's an unpleasant smell. Hmm. And you can practice being okay with it. It doesn't mean that that you're okay with unpleasant smells in your life and you don't do anything about them. You don't look for the dead mouse. But it doesn't have to ruin your day. It's the same thing that happens when people deal with pain. Somebody asked me last week, how can I not be averse to pain? So uh, I thought a lot about that. And, um, you know, if you're in pain, it's a natural thing, whether that pain is physical, mental, emotional, to try to Fix that pain to make it go away. You don't have to pretend that all pain is okay. But being in pain does not have to ruin your whole day. Being in pain 
does not have to be who you are. This is not simple. But being able to look at this is pain and this is my life. Maybe I'm going to be in pain the rest of my life. But it's not going to be the same pain. It's not going to be the same intensity. It's not going to be the same way. So if I decide that pain is totally unacceptable to me, I'm saying I'm just not going to be happy. (laughs) And I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to do that. So I know that I can tolerate certain kinds of pain. I know that I can go get certain kinds of pain treated. And I do that. I do both those things. And I'm not happy when I'm in pain. I'm going, ah, I don't like that. But after I say I don't like that, and I've tried to do something about it, I don't need to keep telling myself the story about my pain. I don't have to own the pain. It's just there. The same as the sunshine and the floor I walk on. And somehow by, by focusing on another part of it, which is maybe how I feel about the pain, Maybe I look at that. How do I feel about the pain? What's, what's my attitude about the pain? And I'm looking at that. I'm somehow less interested in the pain. And now I'm looking at, at something else about it. I'm looking at something else about my response to it. There's less suffering there. Less suffering Uh, when I was on retreat, it was, an actual, it was actually a very painful retreat because, in fact, I did have some calluses over my heart that I knew about that I needed to treat. And what happened on this retreat is I experienced all kinds of physical pain as some of this stuff was leaving my body. And uh, pain was really present. <laughs> I never even got to my knee pain. <laughs> there were too many other things going on, you know? And I found that really interesting because what I was looking at were all those places that I was holding in my body, things I had not let go of. Wow. That's not the nature of all pain, by the way. So that's not what I'm saying. But it was very interesting to me to have a view of what was going on that was independent of the pain itself. That was very interesting. It taught me something about pain. So, so, so you've all felt tension in your shoulders, right? And, and if you, if you lo- lower your shoulders, you know, when, when you're feeling that tension very often, your, your shoulders are pretty much next to your ears. <laughs> Mine are anyway. And when I physically lower my shoulders, if I'm feeling tension, the quality of the tension changes quality of the tension changes. Focusing on what's going on in the body is a very good way of dealing with aversion and hatred and ill will. Notice what's going on in the body. See if you can relax that. And by some curious method, you see that what was so obsessive before is not so obsessive. It's not so important.
I mentioned earlier about ease, looking for ease in your life. In order to be at ease with the unpleasant, you have to know what it actually feels like. You have to know what ease feels like. And we're not used to noticing that. We actually are not used to noticing when things are okay. Because we're pretty much always on the lookout for what is not okay. That's kind of a a survival thing that's built into humans. And so it becomes very interesting and very useful and very skillful to start noticing when you're okay with something. Oh, I'm okay. Check in and just notice, well, it seems I'm actually at ease. It's not a measure of happiness or sadness, pleasant or unpleasant. I'm actually okay with this. Notice it. See what it feels like. See what it feels like mentally, emotionally, physically. Oh, I'm okay. Otherwise, you'll never recognize it. And the act of recognizing it conditions your mind and heart. Conditions your mind and heart. So that when anger happens or ill will happens or just plain old strong aversion happens, you say, oh, there's aversion. And, and you, you feel that that kind of squeezing in your body or the tightness in your belly or the, the thumping in your chest. And you can say, ooh, that's pretty unpleasant. Pretty unpleasant. And then anger becomes something out there. It's separate from you. And the idea of cultivating loving-kindness and generosity and appreciation is part of that recognizing and conditioning the heart toward a state of ease, of ease and equilibrium, equanimity. You actually have to condition yourself to be there. And then, then you notice when you're upsetting that equilibrium and you say, ooh, Do I really want to do this? Do I need to justify how angry I am right now? Maybe I can let go of that justification part anyway. Maybe I don't have to do that. Practice metta. Practice forgiveness. Become a connoisseur of gratitude and appreciation. I'm going to read you something here from Jane Hirschfield just because I like this. This is called a cedary fragrance. Even now, decades after, I wash my face with cold water. Not for discipline, nor memory, nor the icy awakening slap, but to practice choosing to make the unwanted wanted. Even now, decades after, I wash my face with cold water not for discipline, nor memory, nor the icy awakening slap, but to practice choosing to make the unwanted wanted. Let's see, We're very close to the end, so I'm going to give you a chance to, to make comments and suggestions, and I'll, you know, I've probably got a two-hour talk here, so... <laughs> Uh, Does anybody have anything that they'd like to ask, disagree with? 
You can disagree in a very kind manner. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like what it's on. Is it on? Yes. Okay. I liked what you. Uh, I liked the talk, and it informed some things because I've been struggling with what all of you have heard. This raspy cough that uh-huh. you know, it's been going on for about four weeks. So, and the doctors don't have a definitive answer, and I don't have a definitive answer. So I've been practicing a lot of aversion toward this cough and associated symptoms over a little while. So thank you for this talk. The one thing, I was with you on your example of the guy driving behind you in an erratic manner, and then I imagined myself in that situation, and then I imagined that he hit me. And I was um, struck by the fact that I didn't think I could stay in a non-aversive mode if he had run into me. Maybe that's true, and maybe it's not true. Uh, Yeah, we don't know know until someone hits me. Yeah, the last time somebody hit me, (laughs) I was stopped, and he ran into the back of me and uh, did a lot of damage to my car. And uh, I can tell you I didn't like it, but the first instinct I had was to run back to the car and make sure they weren't hurt, the people behind me. It really was my first instinct. And then I looked at my car. (laughs) But it it is a conditioning. It is conditioning that that makes that possible. And it is not, you know, I I regret that he hit me. But I actually don't have any ill will toward him, the guy that hit me. Um, I truly don't. Uh, I can think of conditions where that would not be true. But you don't know... You actually don't know what your first reaction would be. And it probably, it probably wasn't my first reaction. It was probably, am I okay? Is my husband okay? You know, there's probably more about fear. But because it was, am I okay? Then the next thing is, are they okay? So, so I don't know exactly what was first because my mind wasn't moving slowly enough to know that. But the, the conditioning I had was to make sure they were okay next. My callous would have uh, said this guy was driving erratically and he's at fault before I worried about whether he was okay or not. I, I can Might just be. tell my callous is like that. You think, well, so okay. I'll work on that callous. Work on your callous. <laughs> Behind the person back here. And thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, while I generally agree with uh, the direction of what you're saying, I think there's a very important caveat that I would suggest. Uh, and even your last quotation there, I was um, I was troubled by it because you know you could take the stand that you know war it can become acceptable. So something unpleasant as war I can make acceptable. So I think that there is a you know, you've got to be careful on something like that. Um, or that, you know, some evil is occurring and that I accept it and I become comfortable with it. I think we have to be careful with that. And I think that the other point that you were making in terms of aversion or viewpoints 
is again, we have to be careful. Um, you know, there are life-affirming things in life and there is life-destroying things. People can be very negative. But I choose not to put myself in. And I did for a time listen to talk radio, using your example. And I found the, there was nothing positive I was learning from it. There was no viewpoint that was logical. And I found myself more angry at it because they were so evil in, in their discussion. And I think that we got to be careful. Like if I want to spend, I've got 24 hours in a day. And I make choices about how I'm going to spend that time. If I want to spend the time coming here and learning about what life should be like, or am I going to spend it listening to some lunatic raving about something in which I'm not going to do, that's a choice I'm going to make. So it's got to be careful that we don't... I mean, life would put us in situations. and, And I understand that we have to be reflective and aware of our feelings when we get angry at certain behavior in other people. But as you become more open to compassion you become more aware of the sufferings that others are causing. And that causes you then to act in that. Um, So, yes, it's nice to see two points of view, but sometimes one point of view is very wrong and is soul-destroying. And you have to kind of be aware of that, that if you expose yourself to that evil, that that's not going to be life-affirming for you. Uh, And you don't need to do that just to prove it. I think that we have to uh, spend more time in life-affirming actions, and as we do that, then hopefully by our very presence that we will not call, we will not be that jerk driving, that we will be more aware of what we're doing and how we're impacting other people. But I, I just thought there was a little bit of a caveat there in terms of it's nice to talk about make, not making judgments, but we do have to make judgments in life. You know, but the question of it is, do we change that judgment based on additional facts? So there's a question of judging something and being judgmental, and I think there are two different points of view, and I think it's important. We can judge ourselves in the way we cross the street and say, is that car going to hit me before I, I get across the other side of the street? Or we can make a judgment because that person has a certain skin color or they live in a certain part of town, they are who they are. And we don't then don't try to know who they are. So that becomes maybe a judgment thing. But there are... You know, so I make the judgment that I will not choose to listen to certain things because they're not life-affirming to me. I don't think that's wrong. So You know, and I, I guess I, I just want to yeah, put that I, out there. I agree with most of what you've said. So uh, I'm going to use a slightly different word than judgment. I'm going to use discernment. And the reason I'm using discernment is that I, I want to get out of the trap of how people use the word judgment And I want to make the distinction that I mentioned very early in the talk about looking at something, looking at a view and seeing whether it has, it brings suffering or whether it is beneficial. And that I lessen those things that bring suffering and I cultivate those things that are beneficial, which is similar to what you said. So if I decided I needed to have a view, of somebody's point of view that was not so comfortable to me, I probably would not choose talk radio for the reason that you mentioned, that it can be very uh, strident and not really very informative because it's just repeating. uh, uh, Its intention is to get people riled up. But I might read mm, maybe the Wall Street Journal. Okay? 
whose editorial page is more conservative than I myself am, and I hope nobody who's listening to this makes too many assumptions about that. Please (laughs) don't judge that, because I actually get the Wall Street Journal at home also. So I compare, I try to get information that is not exactly the way I think from either side of the political spectrum. Uh, I've been to uh, a Muslim mosque. The experience for me was extremely unpleasant, as it turns out, uh, because people didn't like me being there. But I did go because I wanted to know. Right, so I think there are there are ways that you can engage, but you are. Not, it is not necessary to beat yourself up to do this. So I agree completely with that. Uh, there was something you said right at the beginning that I wanted to respond to, but I've lost it. Um, war. War. Uh, I hope I never become okay with war. This is not acceptable. War is not acceptable. But I can. Uh, I have some distance from war. It's part of that living in a relative protected place. But I'm not immune to it. So when we are engaged in war, one way that I make myself feel that is by not ignoring it. And I read about it, and I look at the pictures, and I say, I am not separate from this. I'm not okay with it, But what I do is I try to establish uh, the way that I can express my distaste with war, my aversion to war, is not by developing hate in my own heart toward those people who wage war, but by remaining compassionate toward those people who have gone to such extremes because of what they believe. Okay. There was one other comment over here. We are past time, but so if you need to leave, please feel free to do so. But go ahead. She she says it's on for sure. It is. Yeah, I uh, ended up calling nine one one about a bad driver for the first time three weeks ago, and I've occasion I've in the past I've avoided doing that uh, because I remember what a bad driver I was twenty thirty years ago, and I sort of feel well. Okay, you know, we have our bad days. Uh, But this guy was actually rude. He pulled in front of someone and then started yelling obscenities to the person he'd pulled in front of. And uh, then he started yelling obscenities to me. Then I called 911. He he started doing very evasive maneuvers before he got his license. But I sort of felt like there was... There was a sort of a deliberate, it wasn't just recklessness, there was a kind of a deliberate malice there that I sort of felt, I kind of, how do you contain, and I have, I wrestle a lot with um, compassion for those who wage war, I, um, I can almost get it for those who support war, but those who wage war, I almost... It's still very hard. I th- that Bob Dylan song, Masters of War, who says, uh, even Jesus would never forgive what you do. <laughs> that was before he became a Christian. <laughs> uh, so, um, so, yeah, that's a, I'm wrestling with that. Thank you. Yeah, we all wrestle with where, where is the right place to be. And, uh, I have twice in the last 
three days, had uh, drivers yell uh, obscenities and make gestures at me. And uh, in both cases, I was mystified about why they did it. (laughs) Uh, And I just remained mystified by both of them. And, And they continued the operation, you know, to make sure that I got the message um, and I felt sorry for what they must be carrying to do that because I'm actually pretty harmless and a really good driver <laughs> <clears throat> in my view in my view in my view so may you find that space in, of awareness that stops your mind from running away with ideas and stories at hostility pause may we learn to live without resentment. May we find the ease of being with things as they are, the ease that arises from the realization that all desire and aversion are responses to impermanent conditions, that these experiences are separate from us, they are not us. May we be free of suffering. Thank you.